You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. My name is Jamie Lasanti, and usually I am existing only in the background of these podcasts, but today I'm going to take the reins and we're going to call John Wertheim from Paris. You've probably seen him on set and on the grounds at Rolling Garros, and so we'll bring him in now. John, how you doing? Good. How you doing? Long days, but uh, no complaints. We are here in New York. You're there in Paris. We're on day five, Thursday. Uh, we're still waiting for the rest of the night's results to come in. But tell us what kind of has been the biggest news around the ground so far. I mean, we see your recaps and all of the news every day. But what's the biggest story floating around? I would say we haven't seen a colossal upset yet. We saw number one seed Angie Kerber go out the first day, the first morning, but I don't think a whole lot of people expected her to last long. It was almost an upset that more people weren't that shocked by the upset. Um, but I think it, it's been a very emotional tournament. I would say that would be a theme, emotions bubbling. Uh, we, we saw Steve Johnson mourning the loss of his father and winning a tight match. We saw today, I don't know if, if this is – gone viral yet but uh we saw nicholas almagro have to retire mid-match and del potro go to the other side of the net and, and console him and then stay with him at the chair we've had the the unpleasant uh runaway emotions of our uh assaulting wild card who has been banned for the rest of the tournament for an act of uh i think the term was uh for the press release was inappropriate i think it's known more familiarly as assault um you can watch that video as well. So this has been a week so far anyway. Not a lot of colossal upsets, but a lot of sort of secondary storylines. Most of them, uh, if, if I had to write this up, I would build a theme around uh, emotion. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about today's biggest one uh, with Del Potro and, and Amalgro. Um, I mean, watching, and I, I don't know where you were, but 
at first him on the court almost sounded as someone was laughing. You didn't even realize, um, you know, how inconsolable Malgra was when he fell to the ground. I mean, what what were you thinking when you were watching that? Can you give us any details? You know, it's I, I was on the uh, on the TV terrace, which was right behind the court, and everybody started standing up, and I could see people taking their phones out, and you sort of said, well, that, that's strange. It's the middle of a match. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, two veteran players, but it's not as though, uh, you know, Nadal's playing. Why is everyone taking out their – I could only see one half of the court. And then I, I saw the – the video and it was it was excruciating you're, you're right it sounded as though the, those it was laughter and said it was these keening sobs and uh this is a guy in Almagro that's tried to come back from injury many times this was once a top player who's really struggled with injuries for most of the last five years he's he's back he takes a set off del potro life's good and then uh he has that knee injury and it was just it was it was honestly it was terribly uncomfortable to watch and del potro who also knows from uh injury himself. I mean, he was saying, too, they've known each other since the juniors. Um, so it, it was a, a real act of, of compassion and empathy. But these are two guys that have known each other for, you know, 10, 10 15 years. Um, it was, uh, you know, I mean, these these are opponents, but they're also colleagues. And I think I think I wrote this, that you can be trained by an agent or a handler or a media relations manager to anticipate questions or to behave in a certain way. But that was just unscripted instinctive sort of decency um it was it was a very poignant scene but the you also thing. wonder what this means for Almagro, who's 31 years old and uh you sort of had the feeling uh this this had a little bit of last hurrah on it already uh you sort yeah. of wonder big picture about the rest of his career and the crazy thing was was that it wasn't only him who was sort of feeling i mean just kind of moments before it looked like del potro was kind of gonna pull up and say and, and retire you know he I think he said he felt something in his groin in the middle of the first set I mean obviously the match was you know one set all um you know because it was it was kind of I feel like that that made it a little worse that it wasn't just him kind of struggling along the whole time but you know as you said uh an act of sportsmanship for sure but I don't think Del Potro he, he faces Andy Murray in the third round but I don't think uh this win feels that great for him, um, you know, moments after. Yeah, I, th- I think you're. I think you're right on both counts. I mean, I think a it doesn't. Nobody wants to win when your opponent is retiring, especially when they're, uh, you know, when they're rolling over in pain. But I think the other thing is that Del Potro has his own uh, has his own health concerns now, um, and we'll see what uh, you know. He has the extra day to recover, so that's so that's good. But um, we'll see how he what kind of shape he comes out against against Murray. Not that Murray had an easy David himself, but, uh, you know, Del Potro's had durability issues in the past, and best of five is going to be a challenge in the best of times. So you, you injure your groin and 48 hours to recover doesn't uh, – that, that, that sounds like a day off, but that isn't a whole lot of time in, in the big picture. And the other kind of emotional scene was, was yesterday, and, I mean, you – we saw the video of you talking to Stevie Johnson right after the match. Um, what was that like for you, just from the perspective of having to talk to this guy? I mean, he, again, in tears, kind of still coping with and dealing with everything with the loss of his father. Um, an incredible situation. He wins, you know, moves into the third round. Uh, tell us a little bit about that conversation with him after the match. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you and I have talked about these before. You do these post-match interviews, and you're just kind of hoping not to uh, end up on YouTube. I mean, the, <laughs> the risk-reward ratio is a little bit skewed. In a best-case scenario, they're sort of forgettable, and you do your job, and they have high potential to go sideways. And I was, you know, there by the side of the court, and if, if sort of you, you talk to the winner, and usually it's, how did you fight through? What were you pleased with? These sort of benign questions. And... Um, you know, obviously, no one, no one knew this would happen. But Steve Johnson was very, very, very emotional. And I'm standing there, and I tried to sort of make. I mean, I, you know, I know him a bit, and uh, know his coach, and I sort of tried to make eye contact as if to say, "Listen, if you're not uh, game for this, you're not going to get ambushed." I sort of tried to um, let him know it was okay if if he wasn't ready to talk, but he he stopped, and uh, it was, you know, but so suffice to say, my questions about. Uh, coming back from a breakdown in the fourth set were pretty irrelevant when a, when a guy is in that sort of emotional state. But I think, I mean, people looking at social, I, th- I think people were very sympathetic to him as, as they should have been. And other players you know, his, as well. His dad was his other players as well, really kind of showed their support. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, in, in many ways it, it's an adversarial sport, but it's also a community and there, yeah, everybody sort of has known about the story and what Steve's been going through. And I think, I think what's interesting in this case is that his dad was also a tennis coach. So, you know, you, you lose a parent and you go about your job. And if you're going to your dentistry practice or you're going to be a carpenter, it might be an escape. But I think he's out there playing a sport that his dad was, you know, the dad was the architect of his game. So I suspect this wasn't any sort of uh, escapism or anything like that. I mean, I suspect his dad was very present, uh, given that he was performing a job that his dad trained him to do. So, um, you know, quite understandably, he was a, it was a very tight match. It had controversy. I mean, he was penalized on match point. I mean, it had everything, and he hit that one last forehand, and I think all that sort of all the, all the neurochemistry caught up with him. I wanted to ask you about another kind of off-court story that you had said you're going to be paying attention to ahead of the tournament um have you heard much of maria sharapova around the grounds throughout the tournament or has other kind of stories sort of pushed that aside um it's it's funny i i I expected it to be a bit more of a story especially given how controversial the wild card denial was i i it really hasn't come up much i mean it's sort of been pushed aside by a lot of things some of it is just the tennis some of it is you know who knew margaret court would emerge from uh under her rock and pop off who knew that uh there would be a, a sexual harassment complaint against a player. I mean, a lot of sort of secondary storylines have pushed that away. I think, you know, Sharapova will play Wimbledon qualies, and it does look like those will be televised. So, I mean, there's been a bit of news, but um, I, I, it's, it's been interesting to me how little, actually, this Sharapova story. I mean, you're talking about somebody who's won this twice in the last five years, and this was a controversial decision by the Federation. They put it on Facebook Live, and it, it really – I haven't heard much – discussion at all fair that's fair uh what about some of the the on-court results uh anything particularly surprising to you anything uh anyone quietly that has kind of snuck through in these first five days that we haven't really heard about but we may be hearing a lot about headed into week two um that's a good question. I mean, I, I think we, we all knew the women's draw was going to be wide open, and that's what it's, it's proven to be. Um, keep an eye on this, this young up-and-comer uh, Venus Williams. 
hmm. who uh, is almost 37 years old, but is very much in the mix. Um, I think this this Ans Jabber of Tunisia is a great story. She's not going to win the tournament, but she she was a lucky loser. She got in at the last moment, and now she's in the third round, and she is she's guaranteed herself a hundred and thirty six thousand dollars. And I, I looked it up. I think the median income for household income in Tunisia is about four thousand dollars. So uh, she has you know earned generational wealth by winning two tennis matches, and she's the first Muslim woman to get to the third round of a major. Um, that's been a nice that, that's been a nice story on the men's side. Um, Young Chun, the, the Korean player, is in the third round. And, I, you know, it's, it's, I think everybody's looking forward to that Nadal-Djokovic semi on the men's side and, and think of that as the de facto final, and neither of them has dropped a set. Uh, Djokovic 2-0 and with Coach Andre Agassi. And then, the, um, and then the women's has been sort of the, uh, the tournament we all, we all thought it would be, that uh, – we drafted players on, on Tennis Channel. Everybody got five draft picks before the event. And uh, Paul Anacone has dropped four of his five, and one of them was down a set today, Svitolina. So that's sort of what we expected going in, and it, it's kind of living up to this wide openness. You mentioned uh, the Djokovic-Agassi era and partnership has begun. Do you uh, do you think that, I mean, it's, it's obviously been big news, he's – always on the camera during Djokovic's matches. Do you think that um, that is sort of a distraction, um, a good distraction off of Rafa um, in, in this case? You know, kind of everyone looking to defending champ. Is that something you think is happening? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Nadal comes here. He's won this event nine times. He's obviously the favorite. That's, that's good news for him. The bad news is anything less than victory, and it will be a disappointment. That's that's a lot of pressure, but I, I think you're right. I think the storyline really shifted, especially when you know when Nadal played as well as he had, and, and Federer pulled out. It looked like Nadal's tournament to lose. Mm-hmm. Then Nadal lost in Rome, so I think that I, I don't think it sort of diminished expectation, but it didn't make it look like a, a foregone conclusion. I mean, there are players capable of beating him, and then Agassi comes along, and I, I think you're right. I think that might have the effect of uh, you know Nadal's still going every time he practices. There's going to be a crowd. He's still going to be the the, the favorite but I think in the last 10 days or so um, with with the Djokovic coaching announcement I think that has taken uh, some of the focus away from Nadal no doubt anyone uh, you're kind of picking to see into the second week that maybe we really haven't heard about so far um, that's I mean I picked Mladenovic to win who's obviously never you know she's never even made a, a Grand Slam semi mm-hmm. um, and she was down you know she was a few points from losing her first match and it seemed she she's sort of set her back and seized up and it did seem that way but i think there were also a lot of nerves involved um and she survived she won her next match i i stick with her as my pick um otherwise you know i mean i think that there will be some names that people might not recognize in in the latter rounds but i don't think um you know i i don't think i think you you will have heard of the winner so, I mean, Pablo Cuevas, who's I'm looking at right now on court, uh, is that someone that can make the quarterfinals very easily? Yes, absolutely. But um, I, I'm i not sure uh, this is an event that – I mean, on the men's side, it would be shocking if it weren't Nadal or Djokovic. On the women's side, I, I still think there's a level that separates – you know, CeCe Bellis, young American, has played very well, won two matches. She's in the top 50, still a teenager – She's not ready to win Grand Slams, though. So I mm-hmm. think if we're, if we're talking about a winner, I think 
it's still going to come from one of about a dozen names on the women's side. And then the, the men, I think, is really a two-man race. Were you surprised by um, the way that Garbinier Muguruza kind of fought back in her match yesterday and, and kind of how she came back? I know a lot of people kind of didn't think she was going to defend her title, and then she sort of, you know, went down a set there and really had to kind of dig deep. And she has some t- two tough early matches so far. Um, what do you think of, of how she's playing? You know, since winning this tournament last year, she's really dropped off and hasn't, hasn't won on a title and has taken a lot of losses. And at some point, you know, things regress to the mean. You're not going to win every match, but you take, you know, you take double digit losses on the year in mid-May and that has to uh, exact a price on your confidence. She had a tough first round match against Giovanni, who won here before. Then um, her match yesterday against Contamate, who had beaten her already uh, earlier this year. And she showed some some nice fighting and at some point it, it sounds trite but c- confidence may be abstract and hard to quantify but it really exists and i think those those were two big big wins for her i mean if she had gone out early as the defending champion it would have been bad for the tournament it would have been bad sort of for optics but it would have been worse for her mm-hmm. and um now, now that she's won two matches one by beating a tricky player and, and simplifying what could have been a complicated match and the second one by just essentially out battling the player on the other side of the net. I, I think now she becomes probably the favorite. Wow. Over Venus. I, don't know, I mean, you, yeah, I don't know whoever, uh, you know, Hollop never won this thing. And, um, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it sounds, she's barely playing 500 ball on the year. Uh, but you sort of go down the list and who, I don't know who, who would you take in front of her? I don't know. You I'll said stick Venus. With my pick, but yeah, also your pick. Well, yeah. And my pick, Svetlana Kuznetsova, another one. She had a tough match yesterday, too. That's a good pick. That's a good one. Any other storylines we should know about around the grounds? Insider-only Paris Roland Garros information? The the U.S. is leaving the uh, Paris Accords. I don't know if that news uh, crossed the Atlantic. No, I don't. You know, the thing about these tournaments is is you need to timestamp it. So right now it's it's 6.30 on uh, Thursday, local time. And, um, you know, I mean... Who knows? Right right now, it's actually been a fairly calm tournament from a seeding point. We lost a top women's seed, but I don't think anyone, again, thought of that as a huge upset. But 24 hours from now, it could be a very different conversation and a very different uh, tournament. All right. Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll check in with you again next week. Uh, you got it. Let's do it again next week. Sounds good. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks. All right, everyone, that was this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. That was John Wertheim checking in from Roland Garros in Paris during the first week of the French Open. Be sure to check out si.com slash tennis for all your tennis coverage. You can follow us on Twitter at SITennis. You can follow me on Twitter at JD Lasanti, and you can follow John on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim. We are bringing you all the coverage of all the stories from Roland Garros, and we'll check in with another podcast next week. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the tennis.